You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. This is Chris Costa, Executive Director, International Spy Museum. Today we're joined by General Stanley McChrystal, former commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Chris. We're here to discuss leadership, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, and intelligence. But first, let me review in brief your bio to provide our listeners a sense of your impressive experience over 34 years of serving the nation. So I'll read from your bio. General Stanley McChrystal, former commander of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan, author of bestsellers Team of Teams, and My Share of the Task. Your most recent book is Leaders, Myth, and Reality, and you're the founder of the McChrystal Group. General Stanley McChrystal is widely praised for creating a revolution in warfare that fused intelligence and operations. He is also known for developing and implementing the counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan and for creating a comprehensive counterterrorism organization that revolutionized the way military agencies interact and operate. A four-star general, he is the former commander of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan and the former leader of Joint Special Operations Command, which oversees the military's most sensitive forces. His leadership of JSOC is credited with the 2003 capture of Saddam Hussein and the 2006 location and killing of Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Again, thank you, sir, for joining us today to have a conversation about leadership and defining for our listeners the role and missions you directed in both Iraq and Afghanistan. It's an honor to be here, Chris. It, it's really exciting for us to have you here at the new International Spy Museum. But I want to start off first with your current book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality. I recently finished the book and should congratulate you on another accomplishment, another marathon, as you might say, right? They are. So 
I think it's also important to note for the listeners in particular, I want to stress that I had the privilege to see at the edges, but sometimes a little closer to the center, firsthand the impact of your leadership in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and at your task force and to see the revolution on warfare that fused intelligence and operations. In other words, I'm a beneficiary of your leadership, and I, I can say that quite earnestly. And relatedly, what you did as an advocate and a consumer for human intelligence, which is near and dear to me. So thank you for all of that. Well, you were knee deep in it, Chris, and thanks for all you did. Thanks, sir. So first things first. So in leaders, you started off with the basic questions centered around the ancient biographer Plutarch. So the question was, who would Plutarch write about today? So I just like, I know you've talked about it before, but let's just talk about that. Kind of trace your thinking on writing leaders and selecting those figures from history that you chose to chronicle with your co-authors, I should add. Absolutely. Um, like many of us from the day I entered uh, school, 17 at West Point in my case, I'd been trained to be a leader and I'd tried to become a leader and I'd gotten opportunities to try to practice leadership. And then when I left the service, I had written my memoirs and then we'd written a book, Team of Teams, about sort of team leadership. But after all of that, at age 63, I came to the sort of disturbing conclusion that I didn't really understand leadership as well as I thought I did. So myself and my two gifted co-authors, Jay Mangone and Jeff Eggers, both military veterans, but much younger than I, decided to go back to first principles on why do we think about leadership the way we do? Why do we think of the great woman or man theory of leadership? Why do we think that there are certain behaviors and traits that define effective leadership? And then other sort of myths, as we call them. Why is that so powerfully embedded inside us and, and really society? So we went back to Plutarch, who's really the first biographer. In many ways, he defined how we study and record analysis of leaders. So after we read the thousand pages of the translation of Plutarch, which I had not read before, uh, we came up with the, the idea that we would use his model. We couldn't follow 48 leaders like he did. Instead, right. we chose 13. But we thought that by looking at leaders, instead of coming out with an approach that says what was similar about them and therefore deriving some lessons, we really decided to look at 13 leaders and saying, why were they leaders? Why did they emerge as leaders? And what is leadership at the end of the day? And you started off with Robert E. Lee, which you know, profoundly impacted me, and I'll explain why in a second, but could you share the changes you went through with your perceptions of Robert E. Lee as a leader? Sure, I, I'd studied like all of us, many leaders, but the one I'd probably studied most of my life was Robert E. Lee. I grew up near his boyhood home uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. I went to Washington Lee High School. My brother right. went to Washington Lee University. I went to West Point, walked the same ground, made the same oath that Robert E. Lee had made, and then followed a career that wasn't as successful as Robert E. Lee's, but at the same time, lived a soldier's life in many ways, and I considered him sort of the, the stereotypically perfect leader, or as close to perfect. And when you're at West Point, I lived in Lee Barracks. Wow. I mean, you, you marinate exactly. in the Robert E. Lee-ness, and, and he was the gold of the gold standards. And for years, from right after we were married, there was a picture that hung in our house, and it was a pretty cheap 
print that had been painted over with clear acrylic to look like a painting. And my young wife, now of 43 years uh, together, she gave it to me. She bought it for 25 bucks framed. And every set of quarters we lived in, we hung it because I was proud to be reminded about that's the kind of leader I wanted to be. And when people came to my house, I was proud for them to realize that's the standard that I wanted to live to. After 40 years of hanging this picture everywhere we lived, uh, after the Charlottesville, uh, white nationalist, white supremacy events, my wife came to me, Annie, and she says, I think you should get rid of the picture. And I said, no, you gave it to me. I can't get rid of it. And she said, no, I give you leave. And we had about a month long conversation about it because I initially argued, no, Robert E. Lee wasn't political. He wasn't racist. He was just a contextual reflection of his times. And, and most of that's probably true. Right. But she responded. She says, when people come to our house, they won't know that. They may take away the unintended message that you support white nationalism. And she goes, I know that you don't. So after a month of me really considering this back and forth on a Sunday morning in the summer of 2016, I took it off the wall in my study, took it out to the garbage behind the house and I put it in the next day that the garbage picked it up. And that was a big step for me because Robert E. Lee was important to me. I mean, I identified as closely with him as with anyone else, not because he was necessarily a Confederate general, right? but because he was a professional soldier from the youngest age, because he, he lived his life according to a series of principles and values that, that I particularly uh, admired. But you know, when I was at West Point, we really never talked about why he joined the Confederacy. The simple explanation was he was loyal and therefore he was loyal to Virginia. But in reality, when you study it further in the spring of 1861, he made the decision to abandon his country, in fact, betray his country, betray the oath that he made to the United States, the same one I had made as a young man. He turned against his country and spent the next four plus years trying essentially to split that country in half, the opposite of what his hero, George Washington, would have done. That's exactly right. And, you know, he did it for slavery. Now you say, no, he didn't. Well, that's what the South was about. It was to maintain the, the potential of slavery. So I think he got it completely wrong. I think he forgot the most basic of the values that he believed in. And people say, do you now think he's evil? And the answer is no. I don't think he's evil. I don't even think he's necessarily a bad leader or a bad person, but he's flawed. He's flawed like you or I. He's human. Well, it's a powerful story. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I told you before we got started that I've gone through the same journey and uh, literally for Charlottesville, I was responsible for counterterrorism policy and I was literally briefing the president and trying to come to grips with with this notion of Lee. Again, it came up literally the statue of Lee. Uh, I will tell you that uh, the other thing that really resonated with me is what you talked about. We grew up. And I can say we because uh, both of us grew up on the grist of killer angels as infantrymen. We we studied the Battle of Gettysburg, and I know you still go to the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, so we read Killer Angels, and there was a nostalgia. Uh, I wonder, though, if if our generation in the Army has had more of a powerful uh, transition of thought 
Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think civilians have and others, or do you think that this is just a kind of progress, uh, a social progress? I think it's a social progress. It's also a, uh, a requirement to nuance more. Things aren't black and white. Many That's things about point. Robert E. Lee were extraordinarily admirable. But as I think as you would certainly know, not covered in the book, The Killer Angels, but when they went north, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia captured uh, African-Americans, some of who were freed, and they put them into slavery. They shipped them south into slavery. That's sort of a dark corner of uh, that particular incident, but it reflected the fact that the South was about slavery. So I think as we get to more nuanced understandings of how leadership really is and how it was, I think we, we take people off the pedestal, we put them back at eye level, and we look at them as people. Now, that's a ter terrific way of putting it. I, so one more comment on kind of the, the Lee reassessment. I, I shared with you also that I just read Chernow's book on Grant. And this, I did that the only time I could read while I was serving at the NSC was a few hours on a Sunday, and I would usually fall asleep in, <laughs> um, in the middle of uh, the book, not because it wasn't compelling, just because. Um, so have you read Chernow's book, and, and do you agree with his assessment of the great humility of, of Ulysses S. Grant? Oh, I do. In fact, I had a conversation with Ron about it, and he, oh, he flattered me by asking me my opinion whether it I thought he'd gotten the military culture part right. And I thought he did a brilliant job of that and told him so. But much more, I think he captured a human being. I mean, Grant leaps off the pages of Chernow's book as very human from his youth to his time in the service, his, his questioning of the War of Mexico, um, his sense that he was a failure in the, the years after he left the service before the Civil War. And then his efforts as president and then it's post year. I mean, he just comes across as brilliant and focused, but vulnerable. And I think that's most of us. Well, good. That's, that's my assessment. And the humility is what really struck me. And I, I needed that as a touchstone. So uh, thanks for your, your offerings on that. You also used a couple minutes ago, the word contextual. And um, in your book, you talked about the highly contextual nature, nature of leadership. Maybe you can describe what that means exactly, just in a little more detail for folks who are listening. Sure. Uh, many of us have seen a leader who is very successful in one venue, either politics or business or something, and then they are moved into another leadership and they bring their habits, they bring their the things that work for them and they do it and they fail miserably. And we tend to say, well, old Stan lost it, you know, doesn't have the same focus that they did before. In reality, the context of a situation defines the effectiveness. So you don't lead people who are frightened and tired the same way you lead people who are confident and celebratory. So the context of who you're leading, the environment in which you're operating, your competition or your enemies, the tasks you have to they define what kind of leadership is appropriate and necessary. And so what we find is the very best leaders in history either intersect by luck with a context of a moment that makes their particular approach effective. And it typically has a shelf life. It, over time, it, as the context changes, there doesn't. Or they are the kind of person who has the humility, and I love the term there, 
to be empathetic, listen, feel for what's happening, and adjust their leadership to the moment. Um, they are less common, but it, ultimately I think they are the most effective. I appreciate that. So I'd like to transition a little bit to two leaders you profile. And uh, it resonates with us at the International Spy Museum because we're going to tell the story that people maybe didn't know about Harriet Tubman. I don't want to spoil it, but I am so impressed by that five foot tall individual that seemed to tower above many of us. So can you talk a little bit about your choice on Harriet Tubman? And then maybe we can transition and talk about Zarqawi. Sure. Um, when we when we wanted to look at leaders, we wanted to get people of diversity. We wanted to get different backgrounds, different nationalities, different races, genders, and whatnot. And we also wanted to have these genre. We had six genre, and one of them was heroes. And in heroes, we weren't looking at someone who had medals or necessarily was heroic. We wanted to look at people who were viewed as heroic. And then we would sort of make an assessment on whether they, they really were. Harriet Tubman's one of those people, the closer you look, the more there is. Right. And I had known about her, but as we studied her, we find out this, at the time she leaves slavery, she's a middle-aged, five-foot-tall African-American lady who just walks off an Eastern Maryland plantation and heads north, which is harder than it sounds. Yeah. It's hugely dangerous to run away, but also when you get to the north, it's not like crossing the line and you're good. You have to go all the way to Canada because the fugitive slave laws before the Civil War allow you to be brought back. So she goes all the way and extraordinary, you know, performance. Then she goes back 13 times before the Civil War in the 1850s. Now think about that. This young Af or this middle-aged African-American woman goes back into slave control territory. If at any time she's captured, she's going to be at least re-enslaved probably executed because of what she's done. First to bring out relatives, then to bring out others. And we're not talking about, you know, clean stuff. We're talking about she went in the winter most of the time because it was more darkness, it was easier to operate. So we're tramping through swamps in the winter to go bring people out. And then you're not bringing out escaping POWs, you're bringing out families. And so you are shepherding women, children, and men who've never been free through this very dangerous route back up to the north and get them all the way to Canada. So the, the danger was extraordinary. The operational skill required was pretty high order. That's right. And then when the Civil War starts, uh, she becomes essentially a scout for the north, goes into the south and operates, same thing there. Uh, and then after the war, she becomes known not only as a, uh, first she was for uh, abolition during the war, but afterward for the rights of others, but also for female rights. So, I mean, she just, one of these people who lived modestly till the day she died, she had to fight to get this small pension from the US government to pay her back for her services. And so when you think about what she really did, she became a symbol, but if you actually scrape beneath the surface, there was just so much to admire there. And we have so many heroes to pick pick from, right? And exactly. I, I think you chose well. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to make that decision, but but I am uh, really, really uh, pleasantly surprised about what I've learned about Harriet Tubman. And w the work that she did in South Carolina was impressive, covert action and 
Espionage 101. There was a network that answered to her. It's it's astounding, really. Yeah. So now it's hard to transition to zealots, right? Yeah. But we'll. I think it's important for us because our listeners will be fascinated to hear some of your insights on on what you did as a task force leader as it related to Zarqawi and the, really the power that he had as a leader. Some will be surprised what kind of leader was Zarqawi, but he truly was a leader. And uh, before we recognized ISIS, yeah. it was Zarqawi. Those seeds were already planted. So if you could talk to us a little bit about Zarqawi and your selection. Well, you and I intersected with Abu Musaba Zarqawi, a young Jordanian who turned out to be an extraordinarily effective leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was a spinoff from Al-Qaeda, but a separate organization that actually, at the height of the war, took more power and more energy away uh, uh, than Al-Qaeda did. And you look at, he wasn't well-educated. As a young man, he'd gotten in trouble. He'd gotten a lot of tattoos, crime. He's kind of a bully. He went off to Afghanistan to become Mujahideen or a holy warrior. And he really missed most of the war against the Soviets. He fought against the remnant Afghan government and became more convinced that his ideology was extreme and he wanted to follow this. But he didn't have the the religious bona fides. He hadn't studied the Quran. He couldn't talk in depth. So instead what happens is when he is imprisoned in Jordan for five years after forming a terrorist group that wasn't very well organized in the early 90s, he, in prison, he decides that the way he can be effective is to play to his strength, which is his self-discipline. He is extraordinarily pious. He covers the television when female figures come on. He, he basically is the enforcer to everybody else that they must reflect religious piety. But he lives it himself. When he can't remove tattoos with bleach that he put on when his youth, he cuts them off with a yeah. razor blade. And everybody sees this. So they know here's a guy who is just so committed that he's willing to do anything. And, and you think what attracts us to people like that, Maximilien Robespierre, the French Revolution, and Zarqawi, they're like a flame that burns white hot. And the rest of us aren't nearly so committed as they are ideologically pure, but we admire it. Even if we don't share the feeling, even if we think they're a little crazy, even if they're across the line from us, you have a grudging admiration and an attractiveness to that. And so what happened is when he got into Al-Qaeda in Iraq, he turned out to be an effective leader, a charismatic leader, but also demonstrated this complete zealotry, complete commitment. You knew he was in it till his death or victory. And others who didn't share his level of commitment still followed behind him. Uh, and if we look across at history, we look how often a zealot comes forward. Sometimes we call him a populist or something, but in reality, these people come along, these leaders come along, and we sort of drop what we're doing and we follow the circus out of town and then we realize we really didn't want to go out of town, nor did we want to be in part of the circus, but look what they were able to do. And it says more about us than it does about them. It says, what do we need as, as followers, as participants uh, in and from our leaders? And we need to learn to be more thoughtful about it. If you mindlessly follow, you're gonna mindlessly get somewhere. Right. And, and so, uh, I think it's a real window or mirror back on us. 
and it seems almost cliche, but you went after that network with, I won't say zealotry because we're talking about a zealot, yeah. but with a fervor like we hadn't seen uh, yeah. in our time. And that task force that you led, uh, not only disrupted, but in many ways you dismantled that network. Uh, it resulted in the killing of Zarqawi. And at the same time, it was all about fusing operations and intelligence. And, and it was it was fascinating to watch. So can you talk about yeah. that fusion? And I watched it play out. It was it was incredible. So if you could talk a little bit about that and what sounds like cliche going after a network, what does that really mean? Yeah, no, it's a, it's great. There are two parts to it that you sort of definitely hit on there. The, the, the second more obvious is they had developed this network that used information technology, which was relatively new, cell phones and computers. Yes. And it given this operational reach and agility that we'd never seen before. And so they grew and they were extraordinarily effective. And so we had to become a network to defeat that network. And we became an information technology and energized network. We broke down walls between different organizations inside Joint Special Operations Command, but also with the CIA, with the FBI, with all our partners, to a degree that had not been done before. And it was not only done, it was done in real time. This stuff was happening in, in seconds, not weeks like it does when we had before, which was a culture change inside the organization. And so from a an organizational leadership or management standpoint, it's a fascinating case study of what the organization sure had to do to win. But you know something that is almost more important. We were facing an organization under a zealot of people who were committed to something, suicide bombers. And, and the, the pretense of going back to the seventh century is not attractive to that many people, yet they got a tremendous number of supporters. What really happened inside the force, some of it was intentional and some of it was probably just reflexive, is we became pretty focused ourselves. We became, I took command for two years and stayed five and stayed deployed the whole time. Uh, many of our, the people involved in it, you know, were just as committed. The counter-terrorist forces and the intel people, the whole part of it, people were there year after year after year with a commitment that that I was just astounded by, that the personal sacrifices, the courage that was put forth, but this absolute fixation on destroying what we considered was an extraordinary threat. And you don't often see that, as you say, in that task force. Was there a bit of zealotry? Yeah, absolutely. Was I part and parcel of that? No doubt about it. Uh, but I don't think we could have, uh, I don't know whether we could have done it doing a nine to five. This is business as usual. That's approach. right. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. 
With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And you could see that as an outsider, or you could see that as an insider. It was all about mission accomplishment and some other tools that I want to talk about. And that's yeah. empowerment. It's it's it all comes back really to to leadership. But at the same time, it was characterized as a relentless counterterrorism machine, a counterterrorist machine. And you just articulated some of those pieces and parts that all came together. This machinery. Um, I would also say that. And here's where I'll take you to just the last couple of years. In, in my last couple of years at the White House, where I finished up my career, we still talked about the importance of fusing intelligence and operations and taking down the interagency barriers. So what you did with the task force spilled over and really it spread like, like a good counterinsurgency strategy across the U.S. government here in Washington, D.C. Could you talk about that for a minute? Sure. The, the first thing is, we used to ask ourselves when we were frustrated, who's in charge of the war on terror? And yeah. the answer was the president. And they say, well, who below him? And the answer is nobody. There is no one in the U.S. government below the president of the United States actually empowered to task the intelligence community, defense department, and the different pieces internal of those to actually work together. I mean, there'll be happy meetings at the National Security Council and whatnot, people shake hands, but that don't make it happen. So we had to bring things together, almost like magnets in opposition, because they're different cultures, different equities and whatnot. And that took leadership, that took pressure, that took courage on the part of people in different organizations. But I would tell you, not at the moment, I didn't think about it, but in retrospect, what it really took most was a narrative. And that narrative had to be starting inside JSOC is this is a real threat and we could lose. If the idea was Al-Qaeda in Iraq was not a real threat or they're not really in any danger of beating us, you know, we can operate five day work, we can and win. One, that wasn't true. And two, we had to convince people of that because then you convince people the kind of effort and commitment that it requires. And so the narrative, which grew up inside the organization almost organically, was just how important this was, how difficult it was gonna be, what it was gonna acquire from us. And I think that narrative started to, to embrace all the different parts of the organization because people from different parts would be just as committed. And it, it helped break down some walls. You know, we had that the shooters or the operators used to be the the uh, the highest caste inside this yes. social structure. But what we got was soon it became you were measured by your commitment and your contribution. So if you were an intel operator or if you're a communications person, if your commitment was there and if your contribution was real, we were talking, we were better, boom, 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 then you were there. You were equal. And that became a meritocracy that 
was not initially consciously sought, but it became incredibly important. And we were all at the end of the day linked by that narrative. This is more important than anything we've ever done in our lives. And therefore, we have to rise to that occasion. Well, just know that you should be heartened by the idea that people across the government still talk about that. But people like me who are leaving are, are worried are worried that we're going to lose some yeah. of that ethos and that time the further we get away from 9-11, and I'm talking particularly about the counterterrorism problems, that we're going to reflex back to that pre-9-11 paradigm. I hope that's not the case. And that certainly wasn't our ethos, at least the first year of the administration in my little world. But I don't know what's going to happen long term. Mm -hmm. So I think there are still people out there that are carrying that torch. Uh, but we we certainly talked about it as leaders. Um, the other thing I wanted to share, uh, and I think I mentioned to you this before we got started, I just had an opportunity to go talk to NYPD leadership. All the senior leaders, I was invited by the NYPD police commissioner, and it would have been a lot easier probably talking to the the. JCS, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff and a bunch of general officers, because that's a group that uh, they live hard every day. And I had to provide a message that I thought would resonate. And I talked about team of teams, and I hope I got it right. I wanted to break down that work in just a few sentences. And I said, it's about shared consciousness. And I framed what I thought shared consciousness was. And I talked about what I saw you do, which was empower people and accept a little risk there. Give them an opportunity to run. Is it fair to say if you had to break it down to just a few key and critical points and you didn't have time, is shared consciousness and empowerment, are, were they part of your toolkit? Yeah, they, they absolutely were. And we almost didn't figure this out until after the fact, because what had happened in JSOC was a reflexive, intuitive process where we iterated to, to what worked. When we looked later, we really came out with four ideas or four things that were key. And the, the first was uh, trust and common purpose. But they were already in JSOC, in our, inside each of our organizations. The small teams had built trust with tight things. They didn't have trust across the organizations or certainly outside of JSOC. So we had to work that. But the glue that pulled it together was this shared consciousness. And it was, if you think of it as a common contextual understanding of what is happening, what we can do, what we are trying to do, suddenly everybody isn't in their foxhole in the dark, just looking out, worried about their lane. Everybody understands the big picture. And so they understand what they must do, must contribute to that big picture. People feel more included when you share that big picture. People feel more responsible when you share that big picture because the, the issue is not whether they do their small part, the issue is whether we succeed in our overall mission. And so one of the things that made counterterrorism uh, in this century harder was information technology. The enemy can do a lot more. That's but right. one of the things that empowers you is the same, the, the same equipment because suddenly you can share information and discussions and, and understanding broadly. So we, we rooted it all in this shared consciousness. Everybody's part of the conversation, the discussion. We did a daily video teleconference for five years that had 7,500 people in it That's right. for 90 minutes. And people now just, some people kind of roll their eyes. Some I think laugh and think it, we, you didn't really do that. 
We did, as you remember, and it was amazingly effective. Because from when everybody understands the big picture, what you're trying to do, the, the logic to it, you don't have to tell them what to do. You don't have to give out a bunch of orders. You teach that, they'll know what to do. They'll see the situation and they'll respond and they'll respond close to the point of action, much more empowered and faster, and they feel like they own it. They feel like, you know- That's not, the empowerment piece. That's right. right. So the empowered part is, is it's almost the, it's what you get from having trust in common purposes, a beginning, and then you bring in this shared consciousness, which is still very uncommon in organizations. You bring that in, and then from that, you get what we call empowered execution, which is the ability for people to act with confidence and competence, because now they've got information that used to only reside in the headquarters or in the C-suite. Right. They can operate with the same kind of wisdom that the entire organization used to put in just a few exalted leaders. Well, again, I've seen it play out and uh, I, I've talked to other leaders about it and it, some of that is also can be embraced in a vision, correct? Absolutely, and, it, it, and I think it's very powerful when it is. So thanks for that. I'd like to transition and talk a little bit about Afghanistan yeah. and we'll wrap up. Yeah. So uh, the first summer of the Trump administration, I'm sure you watched this strategy debate play out and you got snippets of that. New York Times provided some reporting. Yeah. Some of that leaked out, but for the most part, uh, we arrived at a decision to reinforce Afghanistan yeah. with more troops. What was your take on the Afghanistan strategy then? A more regional focus, but how it exists today. Could you talk about that? Yeah, Afghanistan, like if you go back, I've studied a lot, an awful lot about Vietnam and other similar things. You're always in this very difficult uh, situation because on the one hand, if you're there, you think that if I only have a few more resources, some more money, some more diplomats, some more troops, whatever it is, I could do more and we could, and that is your mission because you're sent there to try to achieve something. At the same time, there's a political dynamic that's very real. The more you invest, the more the clock starts to run harder because people become, oh, okay, wait a minute, if we've got this many troops there, this much money, there starts to be an absolute limit on the time you can do that, particularly with a country like the United States because there's an impatience that comes with it. And so I think first off, we were over ambitious in 2001 in Afghanistan, not intentionally. We, we sort of ended up in Afghanistan. We went after Al Qaeda to get them out. And then when the Taliban government fell, I think the West led by the United States is sort of, what do we do now? And we wanted to do very little and just leave. And then you realize this country's been decimated at that point for 20 years you know, morally, you can't walk. That's right. And so the decision was made, but but it was sort of a, a half-hearted level of effort for seven or eight years. It really not much put there. Not many troops, not much money, not much real uh, progress was made, some. But then you hit that point, okay, what do we do? Do we try to do more? Do we have a more expanded vision or do we quietly kind of slip out? Unfortunately, in 2009, when I got there, that intersected with the time the Taliban were aggressively resurgent. So slipping out meant that you were clearly turning this over to the Taliban and presumably to allow them to bring Al Qaeda back in. And so then you get 
the same argument from Vietnam. What's the cost of not being here with a communist takeover? And in Afghanistan, you have that. And, and nobody can prove a counterfactual. You don't know what would have happened if you'd done something different. But we make we get hit with these hellish choices. Do we put more? And if we do put more, is there any chance that we're really going to get success? And that's always hard to measure. And then the perennial question, what does success look that's like? It. And where it's kind of a do loop. Yeah. So that, that caused me to ask you a question, or I wanted to ask you a question about General Miller. Of course, we both know yeah. General Scott Miller. He's out there in a four-star billet running the fight in Afghanistan. What advice do you have for General Miller right now, for Scott Miller? Yeah, well, I think he's the best we have and doing a great job, a lot of experience there. I think that, first off, he's got to have the peripheral vision internally to, to see the big picture. Don't focus just on defeating the enemy. Look at the political reality of it. And don't just look at the political reality of Afghanistan. You got to look backwards because the political reality in the United States and with our allies is just as important. If you don't have long-term uh, political support for commitment, then that's not one of your options. You just, you can't pretend that something's different than it is. And so I think the reality is American policy has to be built on really two parts. The first is, what would we like to have happen? What's achievable in Afghanistan? And then what are we willing to resource that, that is achievable? And those, those things have to go together. How much could we do if we invest this amount? What, what would happen? And then how much can we invest politically and whatnot? And I think the reality is there's a limit on American investment there. I do think Afghanistan's made a lot of progress that people kind of don't want to see after 2001. It's a different place than it used to be uh, before 2001. But I think the reality is the peace process is essential. You're going to have to get the Taliban into the government. That's exactly right. Otherwise, what are they going to do? They're part of your population. Yeah. So they got to come into the government. And then you've got to assume that when they come in, it won't be simple. Because when you bring another part into the government and in, or back into the government, back into the economy, there's no empty spots. There's no un, unowned land. There's no political power that we just give these people returning that doesn't come from someone. So you have to assume that theoretically it makes, it sounds pretty smooth, they'll come in, they'll do this. But you'll have stakeholders inside Afghanistan individuals and groups who will likely, you know, fight like Hellcats to protect what they what they have. Um, any reconciliation or peace process involves a bunch of that. And so I think that we may well get a peace agreement, but then we are going to have some years as they evolve or mature their way into something that that really works. We need to be we need to be expecting that. And then we have this notion, again, that there'll need to be some kind of counterterrorism yeah. platform. So again, the debate comes out. Yeah. I mean, these things are circular. Then the debate will, will be, do you leave some kind of footprint yeah. to act as a premier counterterrorism force with partners? We're right back to where we've been before. I do agree with you that peace and reconciliation is the only way forward. 
and uh, insurgencies do die over time. So there is some hope that there can be some stability in Afghanistan. But what about this notion of a counterterrorism platform again? Yeah, I, I think we've got to be willing to do that. And we've got to be willing to leave forces empowered with technology. But we've got to always be very uh, mindful that it does take people on the ground to know what's going on. Not a lot of soldiers and whatnot. But I'm, I don't believe you can fish a pond, you know, from the edge with just drones or a uh, fishing pole, because at the end of the day, that that's problematic engagement. And so I think we need to be careful about how we do it. Uh, but I, I suspect we're going to need it. Of course, best case would be to build host nation capability so the region solves it. But until that's the reality, I think we have to be mentally prepared to do it. And of course, you have the dynamic of ISIS as a footprint on right. the ground in Afghanistan. Right. So you have competing violent extremists. Yeah. So I want to transition for a second to ISIS. So I had this vision while I was uh, sitting at the NSC working on CT issues that everybody in the world was focused on CT. And you realize that's not true, that life moves on and there are other issues that are playing out, other policy priorities, yeah. et cetera. How closely were you watching, especially early on in the new administration, how closely were you watching the Defeat ISIS campaign and the trajectory of counterterrorism policy? Um, you know, sort of as an, an interested person, not directly involved in that. Um, and from the beginning, I, we were all sort of uh, disturbed by how quickly ISIS was able to get terrain and, and show that sort of that's been rolled back, uh, but I think there's a new phase for ISIS now. You think they've gone underground? I, I think they've been forced underground. There's been a search of Darwinism, but I think as long as the, the rationale for ISIS exists, we did some study of it recently, a young lady and I named Ellen Chapin, and what we really came down to is, if you think of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS operated like a startup, a franchise mile. And so as a consequence, um, it, it has this ability to regenerate pretty quickly. It's based on an idea and whatnot. Al-Qaeda has been pretty quiet for the last- It laid low, doesn't it? But all indications are they've been building infrastructure, setting up almost like Amazon built distribution centers and whatnot. We may in fact find that uh, Al-Qaeda has built this structure that is going to be difficult to root out. And the two are not in opposition, but they are separate, but they both uh, use the same fertile causes to bring people to the cause. And so as long as those causes are there, you're apt to get you know, no end of people who are sympathetic to them. So I think that the enterprise that we talked about early on going full circle, the enterprise that was really focused on countering terrorism, it still exists. It's still working. The U.S. government, yeah. the intelligence community. Any sense from your, again, as an outsider, yeah. any sense of a, of a grade for the community? Is the community doing okay as a citizen? What's your assessment of it? I, I think a lot of things that the U.S. is doing for counterterrorism is good. I think that uh, many of the relationships with allies uh, have been matured over the years. At the same time, 
allies are the essential uh, thing in counterterrorism because it's intelligence, it's access, it's all these things. So you need to think in terms of alliances, allies, relationships. The winner is the person who has the most allies, most relationships, most access. That's true. And so anything we do as a nation or a government to weaken those is stupid. It's counterproductive to us. So we need to be thinking in those ways. So I, I think many of the things we're doing is good. The, the thing that I think we need to, to really step back on, and this is not just the United States, but the West is, what's our narrative for this? Um, because ISIS and Al Qaeda have a narrative that's attractive. It's the idea that these autocratic regimes in the region buttressed by the West, which has been, both of together have been uh, taking the rights and power from the people. That's pretty, that's pretty attractive. And what's our counter narrative? And if our counter narrative is let's hold the status quo, there's a whole generation of, you know, Muslims across the world who aren't going to be as excited about that. And so there has to be a counter narrative. It can't be our narrative alone. It's got to come from those nations. It's got to include opportunity. It's got to include a lot of things people want. And then for us, that narrative has got to be, what are we about? Uh, are we better than ISIS? We just get up in the morning and say, well, they are evil and we're not. You know, it's eye of the beholder. And so if we aren't, if we can't look in the mirror and say, we reflect better values, we take care of people better, then how do we say we are better than ISIS? Um, so in reality, the society that we offer has got to be a better alternative. And sometimes that makes hard decisions. Yeah, we certainly haven't got that counter narrative right. We're still talking about it. Right. There's room, though. We have some momentum, I think, right. with the caliphate being gone. We just have to seize that initiative, and, and it's a wait and see. We have to see where where we go. But I think your your points on working with partners, I didn't stress that enough with with some of these questions today, but we can't do it alone. And that same task force that you stood up in, in Iraq, it was all about working with our, our foreign partners and that carried all over to our five eyes and other partners, non-traditional partners. And certainly we've recognized that. So uh, I think those are some key points and thank you for bringing them up. The last question, I think one or two questions I have to, I wasn't planning on asking this until one of my daughters-in-law over the weekend said, I have to have a signature uh, question to ask you. So I thought, geez, what could that be? And so my signature question, I will ask this of all future guests, what book are you reading right now? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm always reading two because I like to listen on Audible. So I'm always listening to one when I work out and then I'm reading a hard copy of another. The one I'm listening to is Midnight at Chernobyl. It's a story of the Chernobyl that. meltdown. Right. And it's fascinating. You know, I'm not a nuclear physicist, but to watch the bureaucracy stumble and it wasn't just the Soviet bureaucracy and you know they, they didn't know what they were doing. No, it was good, dedicated people. That could happen, that kind of bureaucratic thing could, could be a problem in, in any big challenge in a country. So I, I learned a lot there. And then the one I'm reading, interestingly enough, is a, a set my wife bought me, it's an old set, Douglas Southall Freeman, who had done the uh, two series on Lee, wrote one on George Washington and he got Pulitzer Prize for it. And it's a six volume set on George Washington. 
And I got interested in Washington for a number of reasons. I'd read some other books on him, but I wanted to go in and read about Braddock's campaign and Washington's part in it. Yeah. So I picked up the appropriate volume and I started reading that. And now what I've been doing is just reading the whole set because it's phenomenal. And certainly there have been different versions of history since then. So I don't claim Freeman has everything right. But in six volumes, he's got everything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's an awful lot in there. And George Washington's role in those years of the French and Indian War and whatnot was much greater than even I had ever appreciated. And so it had a profound, some of his early work had a profound impact on his interest on intelligence that resonates with Absolutely. us. It's part of the story we'll tell at the International Spy Museum. So that's terrific. I've read some of those volumes uh, at Leavenworth, interestingly, writing a paper about George Washington's use of intelligence. So that's terrific. My daughter-in-law will be very happy. So thank you for that. So is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we didn't discuss this morning? Yeah, I'm going to make a pitch for something that's just incredibly important to me. I think that if we look at the, the strength of a nation, it is the citizens. It is that which binds citizens together because it's a covenant that we all share. And what I believe strongly now is I think we have a leadership crisis in America, and I don't think it has to do with who's in office this particular moment. It has to do that we're going to our separate corners. We are seeing things through a, a pretty limited lens. And I think that an approach to fix that is national service for every young American. Not, you know, some young people go in the military and that's fine. Some go in some others. I would like every young American to do a year of paid national service in healthcare, conservation, something. Everybody has a common experience of working with people from a different zip code, a different background, you know, doing something that matters. And you say, well, you know, we build park trails and all that's good. And it is. But what it also does is it gives young Americans a common experience that they all have that binds them that really pays dividends a generation later when we start to realize the things that connect us are more important than the things that define or divide us. And if we don't make that commitment now, I don't think it automatically happens. Well, I think those would be some important investments. Well, thank you for your insight, sir. Thank you for your service to the nation. And I've got to say, I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to see firsthand how you led. That was a gift. Thank you, sir. Well, I'm grateful to you having been a part of it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. 
visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now. 